for taking a ride with us today in the rock van and as always we welcome you aboard one of the things that we tried to emphasize in the last episode that we're interested in exploring more is how do you con- and try to get better at and I, of course <laughs> is is how do you connect the dots in rock and roll how do you complete the circuit how do you take how do you go from louis louis to felix papillardi well, let me tell you how we're going to do that. I'll run with it. Well, it all starts uh, in 1963, our story today, with, I would say, one of the most recognizable songs in rock and roll history. And it's a little ditty that goes like this. So, unless you've been living under a rock for the last uh, 50 years or so, 60 years, you've probably heard that song many, many times. Um, And this is a song that was originally written in 1955 by a guy named Richard Berry, but the song really exploded when um, a band from Portland, Oregon called The Kingsmen recorded a cover of it. Um, The song itself introduced a um, kind of a, it was maybe a rip-off, so to speak, of of a Latin-infused song, and it's got this very famous now 10 note riff of this one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, right? So the, the 10 notes in that, um, in that order had never really been done before. So it's a unique sound. Um, and the song was originally about a, a, a Jamaican sailor returning to, uh, to his island to see his lady, right? So it was a love song. And, um, and, and it's, it, the kids loved it. But it scared the adults because they couldn't understand it because the words kind of got jumbled up in his mouth and it scared the hell out of them. Exactly. And, and they were cited for being obscene when right. they recorded which by today's standards is it's nothing tame. short of <laughs> laughable, right? Because it's so so tame. Um, but allegedly, um, allegedly, like at some point in the song, you can hear the guy yell F-U-C-K in the back when he drops his drumstick as they're recording. And that, that was part of the the uproar from from parents now i've never heard it so i don't know how the hell parents ever heard it but whatever you know so um the song goes on to sell over a million copies um it reached number two on the billboard stayed there for six weeks um and as you can imagine the all of a sudden the the band garners national attention it's being played all over um and and so what all bands want to do, they want to take advantage of their newfound fame. So what do they do? They they go out on a nationwide tour. And so the their booking agent starts to book them bigger and bigger venues. 
um, in these in these larger and larger cities. But there was a problem with that in that um, some of the musicians, um, you know, didn't have loud enough amplifiers to to play to such uh, large venues. So um, Norman Sunholm is the bass player of the Kingsmen, and he didn't have a bass amp anywhere near loud enough for for these shows. So Norman seeks help from his brother, Conrad, who's an electronics enthusiast. So Conrad thinks and thinks about how to design the speaker for his brother. And according to legend, uh, and we hear this often in rock and roll, that it allegedly came to him in a dream. Uh, he literally dreamt up in the twilight of his sleep one night uh, the design for this new bass amplifier. Not so, the kind of dreams I generally have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yours wind up wet. But anyway, um, so he set up shop in his father's garage and began building this this thing for his brother. So he builds it, and his brother takes it out on tour, and people begin to notice it's got a unique sound, and it's got a lot of power. And just like in the music world, what always happens, people want to duplicate a sound when they like what they hear. So... Um, he starts getting all sorts of requests from musicians that are touring with the Kingsmen, um, you know, where he's crossing paths with other, other musicians. And um, he starts to get orders for, for, hey, can you build me one? Can you build me one? Can you build me with, um, one? So there were so many orders that this guy, Conrad Sunholm, couldn't possibly fill them all. Working out of his father's garage. Time to move out of the garage. Time to move out of the garage, right? So the the time had come to ramp up production. Um, so in 1965, Conrad and Norman, both the Sunholm brothers, set up the Sun Musical Equipment Company. Um, it was originally to be called Sun, S U N, um, but then and, and that's to mimic the the first three letters of their last name, Sunholm. Um, but the name had already been taken by the Sun Electronics Automotive Testing Equipment Company. So, so someone just simply suggested, well, shit, why don't you just add another N? Why not? Better than adding another U, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, so that's what they did. And Sun Amplifiers is born. And production goes into full scale. And they begin you know, pumping out amp after amp instead of building them one at a time out of a garage. Now, Jim, was that only bass amps? Well, originally it was, but they would later go on to uh, use, or, or excuse me, to build uh, guitar amps, which I guess a lot of people would argue that the guitar amps never reached the, the popularity that the bass amps did. And um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. It, it, the guitar amps certainly were, were met with mixed reviews. Mm -hmm. um, so Sun Amps is becoming incredibly popular. Um, soon, guitarists, like we mentioned, they want to get on the action, and they are asking Conrad to build them amps as well. Um, by the, the late 60s, some of the bi biggest names in rock and roll are using Sun amplifiers. The Who, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Buffalo Springfield, just to name a few. Sun Amps were everywhere. They were uh, for sale in every music store, and you know, seen on almost every stage and concert hall across the country, if not internationally. So, um, 
They say that there was even a wall of sun amplifiers on stage at Woodstock in 1969. So um, eventually the two brothers kind of go their own ways and, and Norman Sunholm winds up selling his stake in the company to his brother in the late 60s to, uh, I guess, after things had dried up with the Kingsmen and uh, they had played Louie Louie enough times, <laughs> it was time to start a career in real estate for, uh, for Norman. It's a natural progression. A natural progression. Everybody <laughs> does it. So either that or they become an insurance agent. Right? So, um, so he, he splits ways. He sells his stake in the company to his brother. And um, uh, so, as you can imagine, Conrad is now getting a lot of attention from buyers and companies want to buy him out. So in 1971, Conrad Sunholm gets an offer that he just can't refuse from um, this guy. I can't remember if it's Bill Hartzell. I think it's Bill or Ted Hartzell who, who ran a, a big Minnesota-based conglomerate. Um, so he, he sells the, the Sun Amps um, and they continued to sell okay, but Hartzell was a businessman, right? And he was looking for ways to cut costs and add profit. It's um, the, the age-old story. So in the biggest cost-cutting measure, he, he began to take these uh, the pre-tube amp um, that, that Conrad had developed, and, and he replaced it with a solid state. And many would say, tell you that the Sun amp was just was never the never same. The same after never that. the same again. Um, so a few years later, this guy Hartzell, who had bought Conrad's uh, Sun Amps, dies in a private plane crash. And his empire that he had built, including the Sun Amps, um, that business is left to his family. But the family you know, shows very little interest in the Sun Amplifiers. And they... Um, they're 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 just eventually looking to sell that piece of the conglomerate, which they ultimately wind up doing um, in 1985, and they sell it to Fender, and obviously a huge name in amplifiers. You know, I, I guess besides Marshall, probably one of the next one PV. You know, you've got Fender amps. And um, well, they were the big competition for you know Sun back in the, the day in the late sixties, early seventies. You had Sun, uh, or you had um, Fender, Vox, it, you know. Orange was a big right, one. Orange back in back in those days too, and and Sun. So. Yeah. Yep. So um, I guess one of the reasons that that the Sun amps had quit selling like they had a decade earlier. Um, some, someone once famously said, Hartzell took a Rolls Royce, turned it into a Chevy, and charged a Cadillac price. <laughs> and so that's a recipe for disaster. So Fender Sun amps were not Sun amps, perhaps in name, but they, they didn't sound anything like the originals. Um, even the, the reissues, when they, they go on later, as everybody does, you know, we're going to reissue the, the classic. The original you know, tube original, Yeah. With a solid state, well, and, it, and it, it just doesn't work. Right. So um, we mentioned Marshall, and that was undoubtedly the Sun Amp biggest competitor, and it was it was started the the Marshall amplifier was started by a guy named Jim Marshall. He's a Brit, and I didn't really know this, but he's a drummer. 
he was a drummer, not a not a guitarist, hmm. um, and that that was pretty interesting to me. Um, but he owned a small music store in um, Hartwell, London, and he had customers coming in, including Pete Townsend and Richie Blackmore, Big Jim Sullivan, and um, and others, and and they they were coming in and saying, boy, we, we, we'd like you to design an amp for us. And one of the biggest things, and Eric Clapton was a big driver of getting Jim Marshall to design an amp for him. And it was, it was basically like two things. It's gotta be really, really loud, and it's gotta be small enough to fit in the trunk of my car. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was how it was like sold to him. And Sounds so, like my wife. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, so he comes up with this, you know, this this new sound, and um, it it becomes really, really popular when Eric Clapton starts using the Marshall amp. Um, he used it in the recording with John Mayall in the Blues Breakers. Mm -hmm, right. And really that was a huge part of the, the British blues movement in the uh, you know late 60s, mid to late 60s. And um, that's actually where the, the Blues Breakers name comes from. Um, they, they, they actually went on to name that amplifier that Eric Clapton, Clapton used as the Marshall Blues Breaker. Um, because it was, and, and, and that was undoubtedly the most important amp in, in Marshall's history that he ever built. It took him on a, a, a trajectory, right? So. Speaking of the Marshall amplifier, Marshall and Son had a, a, a competitive rivalry for that harder edge music um, of the time. And there was a, a famous player that actually used and, and sponsored, endorsed both of the the brands and switched back and forth. And that was Jimi Hendrix during his short and famous career. It, you know, he moved and sponsored Sun Amplifiers and for like a, a, like a, a 10 day touring period, he went from being a big fan of using the amp to actually publish, publicly disassociating himself <laughs> from Sun amplifiers and move back to the Marshall brand. That's always great um, with one of the greatest uh, artists in rock and roll history, right? It, it publicly <laughs> disassociates. And, and by public, I mean he went out on stage yeah. and said, "These are shitty amplifiers." <laughs> <laughs> what? So, what did he? Yeah, but he did. Did you have a quote or I, something? I thought that I thought it was a funny quote when I heard I heard it, but. Um, yeah, that that's never never a good thing when it's it's never a good thing when you know one of the greatest guitar players of all time um basically comes out and says uh how shitty these amplifiers <laughs> were performing for him while he's in the middle of a concert. So, uh but you know what as you mentioned earlier, Jim, the guitar amps were not what Sun really was put on the map and and what put Sun on the map was the bass amps. And, and one of the most loyal users of the bass amp for the, the Sun bass amps was a gentleman by the, a prolific bass player and producer by the name of Felix Papillardi. Right, yeah. And, and uh, Felix Papillardi was probably most known as the bassist in, in the band Mountain. Um, but, but Felix Albert Papillardi 
um, was born on December 30th, 1939 in the Bronx, uh, in New York City. And um, he was a music virtuoso. And this, this guy was a, a real musician's musician. And Studied classically at University of Michigan. Absolutely. And um, could play just a ton of different instruments. I, I think they said um, that, that the bass was like his third or fourth best instrument. You know, and that's saying something because he was a hell of a bass player. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, he he was actually in a master's program uh, at Michigan, and really, what his dream was um, was to be a conductor, and not a train conductor. Not a train conductor, <laughs> no. But uh, but that that didn't pan out. So he he actually wound up dropping out of school, and he goes back to New York City, and he quickly falls into like this burgeoning folk rock circle that was forming in the village uh, area. Um, so, you know, and, and it's interesting to me because when we think about really great musicians, I, I it's uncanny how many of them are classically trained. I mean, I know we talked about it in, in our last podcast, um, but even guys like Randy Rhodes, you know, right. who's such a great guitarist, and he really started out as a great classical guitarist and the ability to take that and that ability and translate it into something harder and heavier edged rock and roll is is so cool because they're doing stuff that no one else can do because of the the way that they were trained and the way that they've grown up and the, they're such scholars of the instrument it just brings such a natural you know, richness and sound to, to the, the Well, instrument. and it's not just the instrument. They're virtuoso w with songwriting and, yeah. and composition and being able to put all the pieces and parts together and layer, yeah. layer them Sounds. and melodies. And, right. You know, that just, it, it, they know the whole, they don't just know a piece of the puzzle, they know the whole puzzle. Right. And, and so... Felix Papillardi, you know, he continues to love orchestral music. Um, <laughs> you know, Here's a here's a rock star that was friends with Leonard Bernstein, right? That, that's just such an uncommon thing for for musicians of such disparity to be friends. Um, but along the way, Papillardi becomes interested in in studio production, cutting his teeth on some of the young up and comers in New York. And um, but his big break was when he got a chance to work with a band called the Youngbloods to produce their first album. Um, which spawned the hit Get Together. And, um, you know, you, you would recognize it instantly. I'll play you a little clip of it here.
So, and you're right, very recognizable song. I think everybody who's listening right now, the minute they heard that that first phrase, boom, exactly, in, and they knew that song. And everybody knows that chorus. You know, come on now, people, smile on your brother, etc. So, um, so he he gets some notoriety after producing this uh, very successful album for the Young Bloods, and um, his good work earned him an opportunity to produce Cream's uh, second album, which is Disraeli Gears. Gears yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and probably their most uh, historic album. Yeah, it's a great album. And um, so they, that album is released in 1967, the Disraeli Gears um, album, and it, it really exploded in um, 1968. And um, so not only does Papillardi produce the album for Cream, but he and his girlfriend, Gail Collins, um, and, and Gail is going to take on a very big role here for, for the rest of this uh, podcast, or at least the rest of this Rock and Peace segment. Um, uh, she she and, and Felix both took on substantial songwriting roles um, for the Disraeli Gears album for Cream. Um, Papillardi certainly helped write one of the big hits off that album, which was uh, Strange Brew. And um, Gail Collins, his, his girlfriend, um, was, wrote a lot of the lyrics for that song. So we're just going to play a quick clip of, of Strange Brew to uh, give the listeners an idea of the song. gives you a feel for some of the kind of crazy lyrics that are going on in the song uh, written by Gail Collins. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of foreboding if you think about the, the very first part of the song where she says, she's a witch of trouble in electric blue in her own mad mind. She's in love with you. It's a little bit yeah, telling about, about what, what happens here in this relationship between uh, Papillardi and, and mm -hmm. Gail Collins. Uh, foretelling the future. Foretelling the future. So, um, so obviously Felix Papillardi um, goes on to produce the final two Cream albums, um, Wheels of Fire in 68 and the Goodbye album a year later. And Felix Papillardi is making quite a name for himself and is soon one of the most sought after producers in the rock business. But it was his uh, work with a fellow New Yorker that would take him from behind the glass in the studio to on stage in front of crowds as a rock star. And um, that, of course, um, was his when he began to work with a band called The Vagrants, which um, featured a young uh, New York guitarist by the name of Leslie West. 
So Leslie West broke out on his own, um, leaving the Vagrants to, to make a solo album. But West didn't have a bass player. And he was um, giving standing musicians um, advice on what to play and how to play the bass parts. And, um, and, and so Papillardi um, is, is giving a lot of input as he's producing Leslie West's solo album. And finally, Leslie West says to Felix, why don't you just play the bass? <laughs> I mean, you, you seem to be, you seem to know exactly what I'm looking for and, and nobody can seem to do it better than you. So why don't you do it? And Papillardi did. And the album which he produced and, and which he played the bass, uh, bass was um, released as Leslie West's um, Mountain album. The, the name of the album was called Mountain. So they bring in this guy Corky Lang on the drums who, um, you know, and one of the more influential early hard rock bands in the United States was formed. Um, they were a trio, kind of like Cream and um, you know, a, a true power trio, yeah. right? So um, taking the name of this Leslie West album, the, the band took upon calling themselves Mountain. And just like Papillardi's girlfriend was influential um, with working with Cream, um, she is also very active in Felix's new project, she contributes song ideas and writes a lot of the lyrics for, for the band in the early days. Um, and she's incredibly talented. I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt about the, the talent that this woman has. And um, she's extremely artistic. And in fact, she actually painted the artwork for, for the Mountain album covers. And, um, and she gets songwriting credit on the albums. And really, if you think about it, her name is all over those albums. Gail Kahn's name is all over. Oh yeah, and they're a, I mean, they're a historic tag team. I mean, the two of them together, I mean, they were, well, I, I hate to say it, inseparable till the end. They were, and, and you know, you can't help but think of, um, I, I think eventually the, she becomes the Yoko Ono of, of, you know, the Beatles, like she becomes the Yoko Ono eventually, because I think Leslie West begins to to feel like she has too much power and influence in, in, in the mountain band, so. Um, and probably to a certain degree he was right. Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I, I think her name appears more than anybody else's on that first album. And Interesting, it, it, yeah. You know, artwork by Gail Collins, lyrics by Gail Collins, written by Papillardi and Collins, and, you know, so she's, she's all over that thing. But, um, so... Papillardi and Collins, like we said, they are a true rock and roll power couple. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but Gail Collins is a tough personality. She's very difficult to work with. She's opinionated, controlling. No doubt she was talented and very smart, but she was also very evil. Yeah. And then you pepper in the alcohol and the drugs on top of it, and that just amplifies exactly, her personality. Right? We're now into the early 70s. We are, you know, at were the height. Were there drugs or yeah, alcohol and going on in the early 70s? We're talking about, you know, the height of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era. And Felix Papillardi is no doubt, like, living that quintessential rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah. Um, he's taking a lot of drugs. He's drinking a lot of alcohol. He's sleeping with a lot of women. Um, and, and Gail Collins is right there with him. I mean, she's 
a rather free spirit herself. Right. She's taking alcohol, sleeping with other women, and taking drugs too. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they were they shared a lot. <laughs> they let, did. Let, let's just yeah. put it that way. So um, the story goes on. So one of the reasons that we bring up the Sun Amplifier and and um, Felix Papillardi is, you know, he was a loyal user, as we mentioned, of of the Sun Amps. But it's it's interesting that. The Sun Amps actually led to his departure in Mountain because um, they were they were so loud and <laughs> it it really did give him very bad hearing loss. Yeah, and he he ultimately has to uh, quit Mountain for a while because his hearing was becoming so bad. And if you look online um, and you you Google Felix Papillardi, you'll see photo after photo of him just standing in front of a wall of right in front of right in front yeah. of I mean the whole wall of, of sun speakers um, so this relationship uh, you know Felix goes out of uh, excuse me goes out of mountain he um, you know go, does a little bit of produ production work again he uh, but but ultimately they, they reform mountain and they produce um, I think one one and a half like more albums or something. Um, because like one of the, the albums at the end um, is, is like half live or something like that. So they go on to, to, to do a couple more albums and he's, he's done with, the, with Mountain by the, the mid-70s. Um, and it's interesting, I, I just recently discovered um, this, this project that he did, which I kind of enjoyed. It, it's a, believe it or not, it's a Japanese blues band called um, Blues Creation, mm -hmm. and they put out some albums in the early '70s, and and it's pretty heavy stuff. And I found it to be pretty interesting. I, I found the um, found their first album on iTunes, and uh, they, for whatever reason, I, I think Papillardi goes to to like produce something for them. They they dropped that name and they they were just called Creation after a certain amount of time. But you know, it's like four Japanese guys and working with Felix Papillardi and they pretty soon start like collaborating. I'm not I'm not exactly sure if this was like Felix Papillardi's influence or theirs or like how it all came together, but pretty soon he's singing for this uh project, playing the bass for this project and um the I believe the album is just called Felix Papillardi in Creation. Right. And um, I, I played Frank a couple of uh, cuts off of it the and, other day. And since then, I found some, there's some cool live audio clips on YouTube of that too. Yeah, I actually have that album too. Yeah. Um, that my 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 great uh, window washer Warren here, who um, I've known for many many years and has supplied me with countless. Um, you know who may be a featured guest on one of the yeah right right well, maybe have, may have Warren on here one day because he's a uh, he's another walking encyclopedia of, of uh, music and rock and roll um, but anyway he 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 loves a project and I I couldn't find this stuff anywhere except YouTube but I want it you know on my iTunes and stuff so I can listen to it regularly and and um, he loves a project so I sent him I said hey can you find me this blues creation or excuse me, uh, Felix Papillardi in Creation. and How long did it take him like, to find Like two days or something, <laughs> right? And it was just great. So um, so anyway, I, I would encourage people to listen to that. The other, Another album that I would encourage people to listen to that, that Felix produced kind of in that, um, that period when he wasn't in Mountain before they reformed again in 1974 is this, um, this album 
uh, by a band named Bedlam, which I would encourage you to check out. It's a, it's a great album. It's another one that might be a little difficult to find. Um, ironically, I bought that CD in the village in New York, you know, back when I was um, probably still in college. So um, just to bring it full circle here, talking about all these New Yorkers. But um, so anyway, this relationship with Gail Collins, it, it just continues to get worse and worse. They're spiraling out of control. The drug use is crazy. Um, so if you talk about Felix Papillardi's death, the people that really knew him, knew the relationship with Gail Collins, they would tell you that his death was very predictable. They could see this coming. Um, th she would physically beat him up. Yeah. Um, Gail Collins was a tough, tough woman. And, and they say, you know, people used to call um, um, Felix Papillardi the, the Sonny Bono of rock and roll, right? right. I mean, he yeah. wasn't a big Physi guy. Physically, he, yeah. He not was. an imposing individual. Right. He, was, he was not very tall. He was a pretty skinny guy, but um, obviously could, could sing and play the bass very well. Um, so, tragically, what happens, um, it, it's just a crazy story. Um, they're, they're, Felix is out philandering as he does so often. Um, he comes home one morning to the, their apartment on, um, you know, like 27th Street and the FDR Drive on the East River, the Waterside Plaza, and she's there. Apparently, you know, she's got a gun, right? And she's, she's, uh, sorry, there's, Someone coming to mow my lawn as we speak here, and there's a lot of background noise. All of a sudden. When you do a live podcast. Yeah, when you do a live podcast, these things happen. So um, so he comes home. She's pissed off because he's out philandering, been with another woman all night, doing drugs. She's whacked out of her mind. She's got a gun. and It's a little Derringer. A little Derringer. And now what happens next is... Is open to, open to two sides of an, every story. Two sides yeah. of every story. <laughs> So, lo and behold, the gun goes off. Felix Papillardi gets shot in the neck, hits his carotid artery, and he dies, you know, a minute later or two minutes right. later or something right. like that. So, the, 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 there's just so many things that are wrong with this story. Uh, number one is that Gail Collins, after this incident happens, the first thing she does is she calls her lawyer. Right. She doesn't call an ambulance. No. She calls her lawyer. Right. Right. To tell him that that what had happened. So then she calls the cops, and they show up, and they're doing their investigative work, and and they find their marriage certificate because they had become married at a certain point. Right. They find the marriage certificate shredded up, torn up in the garbage can. Right. Right. So I mean, clearly this looks hmm. very much like a an act of. Um, of jealous rage, right? Um, so she gets tested. Her toxicology test comes back. She's got 40 Percodin painkillers um, in, in her system at the time. She's not in a good psychological state. Mm -hmm. He's not in a good psychological state. But so what do they go to? They go to this, this classic defense of, well, I didn't know what I was doing with the gun. And it went off accidentally, and blah 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 blah. I don't, I've never even touched a gun. 
Felix was teaching me, teaching how, to me use, how to shoot how to use it yeah. in the apartment stuff. bedroom. Right. And, and they have all these people testify at, at the trial that not only does she know how to use a gun, they'd seen her shooting guns for years. Yeah. Right? And so, so you would think that that argument would just fall completely, you know, flat. However, she's got good lawyers, apparently. Apparently so, and a sympathetic jury. Sympathetic jury, and she winds up, um, you know, not... She's, she's charged with, I think, second-degree murder. And um, she's really, at, at the very end, she's only convicted of um, a much lesser charge... Um, and I'm trying to remember what that was. Uh, she was originally on trial for like second degree murder, and and it's like oh, criminally Criminal negligent, negligent homicide. homicide right. I think yeah, it was called. And that Which would be a cool name for a band, exactly, right? or a metal album. band. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so the, the the maximum that sentence that 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 carries is four years. And even the judge was infuriated right. when when couldn't the believe. jury returned the verdict. He's, he basically said only in New York, <laughs> right? So he he gives um, he gives the maximum sentence he can of four years, and she winds up only serving two years yeah. on on this sentence for for killing Felix Papillardi. So um, when when asked, obviously Leslie West and Felix Papillardi from you know Mountain Days, they were remained good friends and. You know, tragically, a lot of people could see this coming, and um, he he had a great line. He says um, about about Felix. He said, "Buy your wife a diamond ring, buy her some flowers, buy her a push-up bra, but never buy her a gun, <laughs> right?" And he had given her that Derringer as a gift. Yeah. Um, you know, just like a few months earlier or something like that. So. And, and actually, Leslie West and Corky Lang were playing a gig the night he died. The night that Felix Papillardi was killed, they were West and Lang were playing a gig at Notre Dame University, and Lang came in and said, "Hey, I just got a call from my wife. Felix is dead." And Leslie West said, "Yeah, you know what? I've heard ten or fifteen different times people tell me he's dead. He's not dead." And he came back and said, "No, this is true this time. He, yeah. he's really gone." Yeah, it's just indicative of that very toxic relationship that they had for such a long, long time. Right. Um, right. So, um, one bit of comic relief, though, in the whole thing, the cops said when they arrived, Gail came and said, "I, I shot my husband," and they said, "Where?" And he said, "She said, in the neck." And they said, "No, no, no. We meant like what where, room? Yeah. Where, where, where is he? Where is he?" <laughs> right. So, so she goes on. She serves his two years in, gets out, and apparently, like, moves to. Mexico, some uh, remote a, village. She and becomes a recluse. She becomes a recluse. She she uh, changes her name apparently to like Delta. Yeah, or, or I think it was like. her middle name. She yeah. Started using. So she starts using her middle name. Um, so she goes on. She lives there for quite some time. She dies in 2013 at the age of uh, 72, um, and you know all all accounts was that she was just kind of a broken woman and. Uh, I, and I, Rumor was she committed suicide. I don't know if that's true or not. Again, another hazy death. Yeah, um, right. It could probably go many different ways. Uh, what what she was doing on that island and or not uh, in Mexico, but but yeah, again, a lot of a lot of speculation there too. Yeah, 
Well, all we know for sure is that a great man was lost, uh, a great talent and a great producer, a great bass player. So, uh, yep, one of the greats in, in rock and roll history. And one of the things we try to do in our rock and peace segments is um, showcase maybe some lesser known artists that aren't as popular right. and try to try to give people an idea of some of the, the really influential um, people in rock and roll that have flown under the radar for for quite a long time, and it's just a great story. I mean, you know, it it's a, it's an entertaining story, it's a tragic story, and you know, uh, we all know that that sells. So, <laughs> uh, and, and we so so we have kind of come full circle on this podcast. We have seemed to connect the dots between Louis Louis and Felix Papillardi more so than just they their names end in vowels, <laughs> right? And and. And it sounds like the conduit in this whole thing kind of was Sun Amplifiers. We were able to bring these two stories together yep. through Sun Amplifiers. And and because of the power of them, it it, uh, it, it changed rock and roll history, and it, and it changed Felix Papillardi's hearing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so why don't we give uh, why don't we give just a, a hint of of one of the great mountain songs? We're gonna play for you um, Mountains Nantucket Sleigh Ride, which features. A, just a great bass line and tremendous vocals from Felix, from Felix Papillardi. Hope you enjoy. And that right there, brothers and sisters of the rock van, is the one of the quintessential mountain songs, Nantucket Sleigh Ride. And I think people, when they hear mountain, they associate either Mississippi Queen or Nantucket Sleigh Ride as the mountain Two standards. totally different kinds of songs. Totally different kinds uh, of songs. The first one, you know, Mississippi Queen written by Corky Lang with that cowbell intro yeah. that everybody knows everybody knows um nantucket sleigh ride written 
obviously mostly by Felix Papillardi on the music side, a little bit of contribution from Leslie West. Uh, but the, the lyrics are written by, once again, Gail yeah, Collins. Yeah. And um, really interesting backstory to, to the song Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Um, a Nantucket Sleigh Ride is a, an old whaling term. Um, and it, it comes from this action that happens when you harpoon a whale in a small boat. And the, the whale would you know, basically take you for a ride. It would, it would thrash and it would dive down to try to get um, away from its captors. And if they were lucky enough, they would survive this Nantucket sleigh ride, this wild adventure in these boats. And um, these boats are small. These are not big whaling. boats. You're not yeah. thinking like deadliest catch type boats no, here. No, <laughs> no. We're talking, you know, in the 1800s here. So these are um, very small, not well equipped, and an awfully dangerous job. I mean, many, 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 many sailors uh, and, and whale Whalers. searchers uh, died out at sea. So um, this particular um, song is influenced by um, an episode that happened on a, on a boat in the early 1800s um, called the Essex. And it was a, a whaling adventure. It's a true story. Um, these guys go out to sea, um, they harpoon a whale, the the, or the whale the whale actually hits the boat and and takes the boat down. They're they're in a, a smaller boat, and um, they have enough food to last them about two months. Um, so they're out at sea. They're drifting. They're drifting. No one's coming. No one's finding them. They're out in the Pacific. Um, and so, what happens? Lo and behold, they run out of food, and so people start dying of starvation. They start cannibalizing the dead bodies um, until there's four guys left and um, they're out of food they're out of they're out of humans so um, they have to do this horrible um, drawing of straws and they decided that whoever drew the short straw was going to be killed and uh, sacrificed basically so that the other three could live and um, th this young guy named Owen Coffin was in the in the boat he draws the short straw. He's the youngest kid of, of the four. Um, the captain, who was still alive, offered to, to, to take his spot because he didn't want the young man to die. But Owen Coffin, being the dutiful man that he was, uh, said, nope, it's my duty, I'll, I'll do it. So he gets shot in the head and they go, <laughs> they go um. on to eat him. Right, so really interesting story. I mean, it's tragic, obviously, but interesting. And this song is like loosely um, influenced by that tale. And um, while Gail Collins' lyrics don't necessarily go into some of those grisly details about what happened on the Essex, um, it's certainly a song that that has a, a definite theme of um, you know seafaring whalers, and um, it's, it's she turns it more into a love story. <laughs> more than anything else. I mean, if you listen to those lyrics to start the song, Goodbye Little Robin Marie, Don't Cry Because I'll Be Coming Home Soon. I mean, it's more of a tale. And, and I think um, Gail Collins write, writes Robin Marie because that was one of Felix's uh, mistresses at the time when, when she was writing the lyrics to this song. So um, kind of a fascinating thing. And if you look on, on the album Climbing, that, that, or excuse me, on the Nantucket album, Nantucket Sleigh Ride album, um, It'll say Nantucket Sleigh Ride in parentheses to Owen Coffin, who is the uh, the tragic figure in that in that episode. And at the time, Gail and and uh, Felix were living 
in Nantucket. So they were living in Massachusetts. So they were, we're assuming that at that time period, that's when they, they picked up or heard that story and heard that tale and yeah, were captivated. And Leslie West didn't get it. No. He didn't get no. it. They, they, they come in with this idea, and they, he said Felix was writing a ton of different songs about Massachusetts and the Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and, and all this stuff, the Cape Cod area. But he couldn't even pick it out on a map. Yeah, he's like, I don't know what, I don't know what the hell you're even talking about. So, um, so yeah, very interesting, um, very interesting episode with, with this. So that was great. I, it, it was great taking a deep dive on the song. And um, Leslie, just by the way, Leslie came to not only embrace that song, that portion in the middle yeah. of the song when he really it rocks it up and he yeah. takes that guitar part, uh, that that was all Leslie. That was all Leslie, and, and he wrote that specifically so that he could find a piece of the song that he was comfortable playing because he said he hated playing the song live right. because it was just a really, really difficult song to play. It had a lot of unique chord changes and it just really odd. Um, and, and it ended up being the song that he closes his sets with. Yeah. You know, I believe to this day if he's still play him when he can yeah and uh i think he says when he plays it he sometimes thinks of felix but he never, never thinks of gail thinks of gail <laughs> never thinks of gail so um so it was great that was fun being able to talk about it, the song it's great to take a song and take a deep dive on it and just bring it up and bring up the story about it and the behind the scenes and the subtext and just see where it takes us well it's an epic song that that you know if you it's a it's a great song to listen to with your eyes closed if you if you can just kind of transform and put yourself in that in the mindset of of you know what what the lyrics are trying to convey and there are some really visual parts of it you know the guy sharpening his harpoon the old salt who's going to you know fallen asleep up in the watchtower and he's going to be drunk before noon and you know and it's just really cool um visual stuff and it's just an epic song it it moves you and um, takes you on a ride. And you always said, you love a song that just kind of slaps you in the face, yep. whether it's music, the lyrics, yep. the story, or all of it together. You want to feel like you've been slapped in the face when it's over. Right. Yeah, yeah, it moves you. So I think this was a great segment to have. I think we, we should do this uh, on a regular basis. We should take a song and take a deep dive into it. Yeah, um, and so especially I, it ties in really well with honoring Felix and um, hell, I think I think it's such a, a cool thing. Maybe we just name the, the segment Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Yeah, I'm good with that. It's, it it kind of does. You do kind of throw the harpoon into the song and see where it, see takes see where it drags see where it us. Drags us and, and hopefully we won't have to eat each other. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm, i got a hunch there's a hell of a lot more meat on my bones than yours. <laughs> I could survive for months on you. I'd be, I'd be good with that. Well, this has been a lot of fun. This is our second episode of the podcast. Um, if you want to send us some ideas or some information, rockbandjam at yahoo.com. That's our uh, email address. Check us out on all the different era, um, all the different places you can find podcasts. And we got another one coming up pretty soon. Yep. We're already working on it. We're already working on it. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, it's been fun, Frankie. Good absolutely. taking a ride with you, pal. Rock on, brother. Rock on.